quick disclaimer. Opinions of host and guest do not represent the views or opinions of functional movement systems. Always consult your physician before beginning any exercise program. This general information is not intended to replace your healthcare professional. Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. Today's guest is Brett Jones. He is the Director of Education for Strong First, a certified athletic trainer, and a strength and conditioning specialist based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's also a longtime friend and contributor with FMS. In this episode, Brett and the guys cover many topics related to strength and movement. They discuss kettlebells, Indian clubs, how to create and optimize strength, and ways to protect yourself from injury. It's a great discussion and lots to unpack. So chalk up and get ready for today's episode of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. Really excited today. Uh, we've got Brett Jones with us, who is the Director of Education for Strong First, and I'm sure we'll be getting to a lot of what Strong First is, if some of you guys don't know what that is. But Brett has also been our lead instructor and really was one of the cornerstones to developing a lot of the education that, that we've had over the last 20-some years. And we've known Brett Gray for shoot, probably going on 25. Uh, this is our 25th anniversary, by the way, Gray and I's. And uh, Brett actually met Gray even before that. So Brett, uh, thanks for coming on today. Really excited. I'm really excited because we haven't talked and had, had time to catch up and, and chat in a while because of all the chaos that's happened. Um, but Brett, uh, thanks for coming on, man. I'm thrilled to be on. Um, you know, it has been a 26-year journey uh, that we've been on. And uh, I can remember... 26 years ago, standing in my training room, and this big old red-haired, redneck-looking guy walks in the room and goes, hey, my name's Gray Cook. You need some help? And that was the start of uh, a beautiful friendship, as the uh, movie would tell us. Yeah, I I think so. Lee was the head athletic trainer at our our large city high school. Brett was the head athletic trainer at Hargrave Military Academy. These two schools are only like 15 miles apart. And eventually, we wound up with two physical therapy clinics right between these two, and uh, we just sort of hit the ground running together. So I'm, I'm going to kick it off and tell one story, which kind of, kind of, you guys make fun of me, shocking, shocking, <laughs> make fun of me about. But the, the first time I met Brett, um, one of the first things we were doing, because we were doing the, the, the clinic that Gray and I, you were at, um, and of course, I was working at the high school, we were also doing high school outreach. Yes. And one of the things that we were going to do, based off of my understanding from the time is really engage the local um, life-saving crew who were covering the high school, you know, games and, and really try to get to know that group of people and, and talk to them about who athletic trainers were. In this area, athletic trainers, nobody knew who they were. The high schools didn't even know. The coaches didn't know what an athletic trainer was back then. And we were very fortunate to have an orthopedic surgeon who really understood the role of a good athletic trainer and how that person was a huge asset to a high school. Well, long story short, we went into the local um, uh, life-saving crew, and we were going to do a presentation on how to spine board. And Gray, if my memory recalls, was like, Lee, you and Brett lead this conversation. And I'm green. I'm right out of graduate school, probably the 
second or third day on the job, you guys are like, I'm like, well, crap, I got to remember how to spawn board somebody because <laughs> it's not something you do every day. So Brett says, well, I'll take the lead. And the next thing I know, Brett, I'll let you take it from there. We've got Lee in uh, shoulder pads and a football helmet. And we've got him uh, strapped to the spine board. And we're showing them how to cut the, because at the time we were cutting the clips and taking the face mask off so that you could access airway and things like that. And so we finish up, we do our bit, and uh, Lee stands up, and he still has the helmet on. And Gray's standing beside me, and I start getting the elbow, and I'm like, I look at him, he goes, oh, he's like, oh, God, Speed Racer. <laughs> so this is probably beyond anybody's time, but there was a cartoon a billion years ago with this little guy with long eyelashes and dark hair and a little white helmet. And with a red stripe speed, on it. <laughs> yeah, speed Racer. But, uh, oh, my goodness. So I, I became Speed Racer for a period of time. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't know. I was sitting there thinking, oh, this is going on pretty well. And everybody's <laughs> giggling and laughing. And I'm like, well, shit, this kind of sucks. <laughs> So Google Speed Racer, and you will know exactly what that is. Looks a lot like Lee with a football helmet <laughs> a and football no face helmet. mask. But uh, no, it, 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 was a, it was a wonderful journey. And, and we, were, we were talking right before we started recording this, just saying how cool it was that somehow, without ever mentioning it, we developed an ethos that just said, let's raise the bar on ourselves. Let's see if we can do a little bit better. I was fresh out of really learning some, I think, pretty cool manual therapy techniques. And, you know, a lot of people would see me do something with a joint and say, well, are you a chiropractor too? And I'm like, well, you know, we're using a lot of the same vehicles with our hands and stuff like that. But yeah, there's a whole different world of looking at joints and muscles than you learned in kinesiology class. And I never wanted to do it by myself. Almost every course we ever did, I might go off and Brian Mulligan, Shirley Sarman, or strength conditioning course. And I said, I want all you guys to become strength coaches. I want to show you all the manual therapy we got. I'll probably end up doing more of the backs and necks, but I want us all to have a communication and accountability. And out of that relationship grew the screen. It's just a great way to measure stuff and all realize we got some reliability looking at something. We still may handle it different, but the cool thing was we we tried to really get lined up in agreement on assessment. And really, it was that relationship that created the technology. The technology didn't create the relationship. The relationship and the no-look passes we learned to do with each other and handle athletes and parents and coaches and doctors was really, uh, I think, what spurred a technology that is just basically a paint-by-numbers for other people to know how to do it. Following up on that, Gray, I think the one thing that kind of paint this picture for a lot of people that are out there listening and try to put put it in their perspective, too, is that we really were trying to push each other on certain areas, you know, certainly questioning what each of us were doing. And Brett, you took off. It wasn't like, you know, Brett's been in our little town. I mean, Gray, we've been in the same place for, for 25 years. But Brett, you you kind of, you know, kind of did your thing at here at Hargrave. But as anybody who knows the world of athletic training, you get burnt out pretty quick. And and you you left. Kind of give us that, that kind of transition for you. Yeah, so uh, 97, I left and went back to the another metropolis of uh, Clarion, PA, and ran a hospital fitness center for five years. And during that time, I came back and was part of the first FMS workshop, which was back in like 99 at the old clinic in Danville. Yeah. And um, 
but I was running this hospital wellness center where it was in a PT clinic. So we transitioned a lot of folks from rehab to wellness or, you know, working out fitness. So I was working with Parkinson's stroke, uh, joint uh, uh, replacements, orthopedic issues, uh, neurological issues. I mean, I, I didn't know how you were in the fitness world without an athletic training degree. So you really were bridging the gap before bridging the gap was <laughs> a book by Sal, Sue Falsoni. <laughs> so, I, absolutely. So I, I'm an OG in many ways. Um, and <laughs> if people all across the world don't laugh at that, uh, it's, it's a lost moment. It's a lost joke. Because <laughs> um, you don't know me well enough. Uh, so, yeah, and I'm, I'm dropped into this kind of grinder where I'm working with all of these different folks and, and orthopedic evaluation rehabilitation continued to be really important in what I was doing and just the ability to work with the physical therapist and the PTAs and, and have these smooth uh, transitions was really great and come down and you know learn the screen in 99 and then right around 2000 started to find out about Pavel and kettlebells and things like that went and got certified in February of 02 and uh, April of 03, started teaching with Pavel, put out a couple DVDs, and then I get a call uh, early 2006, uh, and I think it was an e- might have been an email first. It was looking for Brett Jones, thought he was dead, uh, <laughs> because I had dropped off the radar. You know, I'm living up in Clarion, PA, and doing my thing. Because and, and, uh, I think, Gray, didn't you see a yeah, I was sitting, I was sitting like on a U.S. Air Flight magazine. <laughs> the way it was in those days is I'd get all these, I'd get my NSCA journal and a PT journal and a couple of other strength conditioning journals, and I got this new catalog, magalog magazine, Dragon Door, and I'm thumbing through it wondering who this Russian guy is and, and, and you know, learning about kettlebells. <clears throat> called Perform Better and asked Chris Poor. I'm like, can you get me some kettlebells? I sort of want to play with these things. And he goes, well, we don't even have them, but I think they got them over in the track and field division. <clears throat> I'm like, do they think they're shot puts? <laughs> anyway, some of the track and field guys were using them, but, but it was not a fitness product. I flipped to like the middle of the thing and I see you and uh, Castro Giovanni, I think maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Probably. And it, yeah, and uh, I'm like, looks a little Similar to Brett, but I remember a guy that sort of wore a fanny pack and khakis and stuff like that. And this guy's gotten a little buff. And so that's when I sent that uh, email. I get ready to say, did I send a text? But we didn't know what texts were then. I sent that email out. (laughs) Brett got back with me and really, you know, we were sitting here in the functional training world. And it was bands and it was lighter weights. And we were really trying to true up movement. And, and Brett really opened my eyes to the history and wisdom in strength training uh, with a tool that goes back 300 years, way before bicep curls mattered to anybody or we tried to sculpt the body. They literally just took an off-center load, lifted it slow, lifted it fast, lifted it uh, in a get-up position and pulled and pressed it. And I'm like, I'd always been a fan of unilateral training with a dumbbell. We were cleaning and snatching dumbbells in those days, but I'm like, this makes so much more sense. And, and Brett got my wife, Danielle and I ready to do our RKC event. And, uh, she was way more ready for it than I was, (laughs) but I was introduced to an entire subculture at the time 
that was really embarking on a functional journey without even knowing it. I, I was seeing a lot more functional results from training with a kettlebell than I was from a way people were training with a straight bar. And I'd already been an Olympic weightlifting coach for a while, but I saw so many people misuse the straight bar in the weight room that I'm like, I could do more of this with athletes and and not create an injury in the weight room than I could over there. Because when you see a straight bar, the only thing you start thinking about is how heavy, not how well, you know. When I, I remember coming into town and working with you guys uh, at, at the house mm-hmm. and uh, on the back porch, and one of the first things we did with Danielle was work on our breathing. And I was looking at breathing at that point way more from a performance standpoint, uh, understanding from Pavel these what we term anatomical breathing and biomechanical breathing match and things like that. And that was a big moment because that was when we, I think, really started tapping into the, the breathing, the diaphragm, you know, how all this stuff is working together. And like I said, I was looking at it more from a performance standpoint yes. because I can amplify your strength right now by teaching you how to properly power breathe and, and nail a biomechanical breathing match. Um, it wasn't until we had gone a little further down the rabbit hole of, of uh, the breathing for health that we really started to incorporate. But it was one of the things uh, when Secrets of the Shoulder and talking about breathing and T-spine mobility, you know, all of this stuff, There's there's been... Uh, I would refer to everything we've done over the years as very organic. A lot of things now, it's almost forced with social media, in my opinion. Just things that are quote-unquote organic or, or almost people are trying to do things and trying to make something different. Take something that's really good. Well, let's see how many bells and whistles I can throw on it. And before they even try and see if it works, it's up on social media, you know, and people are trying to get hits or whatever. Whereas then, you know, I would argue that we weren't necessarily trying to go out and teach movement screen courses. No, the one thing we weren't doing is developing a product. We never even thought that it would do anything but enhance our relationships and our responsibilities, you know? And the one thing I want everybody to understand is the three of us are not savants. We don't have (laughs) secret knowledge and movement, but we agreed a long time ago, we're going to set a baseline and each of us may approach that baseline a little bit different with our skill set and our background, but ultimately, if we didn't change the baseline, we're not patting ourselves on the back. And if we did, we're going to basically say, okay, what's next? And it was simply the fact that when it came to this mixed up world of movement and you know, some people got force plates and some people got bioelectric sensors, we went back to the roots and said, there's some fundamental things in movement we got to agree on. We've all got different exercise and rehab backgrounds. And yet, since we agreed on that, we could see when your technique was working better than mine or his idea was working better than yours or whatever. And that's where I think it actually enhanced our relationship. We agreed on a baseline. We agreed on a retest. All right, let's go. And I think that's how organic works. You do have a a finish line, a stopwatch, and a feedback loop so you don't start thinking you're the best thing since sliced bread. Well, the timing of reconnecting with you, Brett, was so important Looking back at all this, because when you're when you're doing it, it's you're in the weeds. You, I mean, you know, we're 25 years into this, and you go back to 2005, 2006. We had we had kind of really honed the seminar, and we 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 had a pretty decent little movement screen seminar. Movement screen was starting to gain some popularity, and as you just said, Gray, now what? Well, that now what is when Brett kind of kind of reemerged 
Because ultimately, the one thing that I still think even today we get pigeonholed into the corrective exercise world, it was always still about trying to gain strength and get people stronger, get people performing better. So that's really connecting the dots with you at that time was, was pretty critical in our, in our evolution. When I got over in the kettlebell community and, and were meeting Pavel and, and many of the guys that were training with Brett, I really think that functional training and corrective exercise had left a bad taste in their mouth because most of the people who were under that umbrella, I don't think had a strength training background and they were almost scared to push people into those really stressful, strength-giving exercises. So it was almost like functional training, corrective exercise were strength training light. And I don't really think any of us embrace that. If, if you're not doing a, a hard move because you feel intimidated by it, then you just need to change your education. But it really gave us an opportunity to just say, functional training is not about the product you're using. It's not about light barbells and dumbbells and bands. It's about, does this exercise transfer into both better movement and better conditioning or does it just make you better at this exercise and that that transferability is what I really tried to connect with with Pavel because even he was sort of like well I don't know about the the functional training I'm like listen does it upset you when everybody watches your kettlebell DVDs and nobody watches your flexibility DVDs and he goes absolutely and I'm like that's because they're strength training with a dysfunctional base and you have done an elegant thing everything from naked warrior to the flexibility stuff to the strength training but people go after the sexy stuff and so they come to their RKC, RKC workshop with very poor flexibility and very poor fundamental movement asking you to make them stronger and so we're catching that with this screen but the way we fix it is any way you want to fix it because now you got that feedback loop when the interesting thing is you know years ago and uh you know been teaching kettlebell certification since 2003 and, and certified since since 02 and I can remember people early on telling me what a fad it was and how this nobody's going to be doing this in five years and um, we're, we're still doing it but you know with uh, those early days uh, we would spend the first four hours of a workshop just getting people to break parallel in a squat I know. Like it was, it was, uh, so we developed a lot of tools and things within the strong first world, uh, and, and with Pavel's that, uh, were just focused on getting people to be able to access the moves. And that was, uh, you know, and I think between FMS and strong first, I think we've had a tremendous impact because now people show up, basically everybody can rock bottom a squat. Everybody's dialed, pretty dialed in on some of the basic movements and I think that's, that's due to how that's been highlighted within these two communities and how these two communities have really worked together over the last, uh, the last few years. Uh, and I say few years and since 2006, 2000, whatever. So it's been, it's been an interesting journey, but the, the, the goal was always to get them to load. If you look at Naked Warrior, and one of the things that was very impactful for you, I think, as far as Pavel was concerned, was, hey, he's talking about symmetry. Be yeah, able to do the same thing on the right as you can do on the left. Give our listeners some background. Uh, Pavel did this book a long time ago. It's called Naked Warrior, and obviously he had on clothes in the book, but what he's actually talking about is, I've got no weight, I've got nothing. I'm going to go through all the necessary stages to build a pistol, a single leg squat below parallel, and I'm going to go through all the necessary stages to build a one-arm push-up. 
And if you think about that, there are some people that are gifted enough to be able to do those things right off the bat. And the younger you start, the better it is. But if you've got to regain that after some bumps and bruises and baseball and football and whatever, wrestling, whatever else we do, um, these are hard movements to access. But Pavel really broke it down, scaled it back. It looks a little bit like uh, yoga in some moves, and it looks a little bit like planking in others. But at the end of the book, you you see how quick it is. And the one relevant thing I made, because I was writing a book called Athletic Body and Balance at the time, and, and what I had realized is Pavel got you to a very impressive movement screen without screening you. But I don't know how long that book's going to take you or him or me. So you got to go at your own pace. But if you want to speed it up, the movement screen helps. If you if you will, basically the the way creates the warrior. If you will follow that uh, layout, I think it's one of the most elegant things I've ever seen. And the goal of a one arm push up on each side equally well, and a pistol on each side equally well. I got no problems with your function. I really don't. <laughs> Single leg stance, ankle mobility, um, midsection stability, uh, your ability to handle off center load. I mean, it's all it's all wrapped in there. And so I, I think, you know, to to Lee's point of uh, getting pigeonholed into corrective exercise and things of that nature, um, as effective as the cook bands and the the drills and things that we do to quickly change movement. Uh, are the goal has always been let's get you doing the things you want to be doing let's i'm a knuckle dragger i'm I'm a knuckle dragger at heart (laughs) i want to pick heavy things up and put them down Uh, when we did your 23 and me didn't you have quite a bit more neanderthal uh genetic uh makeup in you than most yes i did that that (laughs) explains your deadlifting prowess (laughs) then (laughs) it's one of the factors (laughs) well i mean that's that's right brad i mean it is it is about identifying what you need to focus on to get you to where you want to go. And wherever that place is, is what, whether it's the movement screen or even some of the things you did with the kettlebell community, that's the goal. And I think that's what we're always trying to do. And I think it got to a point, if we really go back and look between almost 2005 and early 2000, 2000, all the way up to 2000, I'd say today, is that, well, we got it. What are your, what are your corrective exercises? What are, what are you doing? Well, you know, it, it just, it got overblown. And we were part of that. I mean, we were talking about corrective exercise. You know, we said, well, we got to do your correctives, but only because that's what you needed and that was going to help you the most to get you where you needed to go. Not that that was just what blanket everybody with something corrective exercise-wise because there were some people that don't need it. And I think that's, that's really what we needed to do. So but let's, let's take a quick break and we're going to come back and uh, get into some other uh, cool stuff. Awesome. You want to improve your kettlebell workouts? Indian clubs may just be the missing link. While kettlebells are great at improving strength and power, Indian clubs are great at improving your speed, coordination, balance, and flexibility. Pairing these two can drive positive results across your entire workout. Club swinging is a perfect complement to kettlebell training. When you have compensation and struggle weight training, you often pick up bad form. It's almost impossible to get bad form with Indian clubs because those things either move or they're awkward. In the course, we cover classical moves all the way to advanced moves and even show you how they can be used as correctives in your workout. If you want a greater challenge, check out our clubs course at functionalmovement.com. Get 30% off the FMS Introduction to Indian Clubs online course using promo code CLUBCOURSE. That's promo code CLUBCOURSE. 
for 30% off. Offer valid for a limited time only. All right, so Brad, one of the last things you said is said you like to pick up heavy shit. Um, and again, if you don't, you guys out there haven't seen Brett, I know Brett. Brett's not a big guy. And when you say that you can lift the stuff that I know you can lift, you would think you've got to be, you know, 6'2 and, you know, be 280 pounds and just be, you know, ripped. But that's not always the case. So kind of walk us through that journey of taking someone and when they walk in the door, how do you progress them to lifting, in your words, heavy shit? So step one, clear the baseline. I got to know where your movement issues are. And I think that that's, you know, one of the things people fear being told they can't do something. Um, But those conversations are very brief. Let's take a break from this. Let's do this. And so if I open up ankles, hips, and T-spine, if I know that you have good midsection stability, that ability to resist the extension stress, that ability to handle the all-center load, then I'm way more comfortable taking you into those training routines and loads and volumes that you need to have to build strength. Let me interrupt real quick because I've heard track coaches as accomplished as yourself and martial arts instructors as accomplished as yourself say the exact same thing. Isn't that... Yeah. It's, it's unique. Whether you're going for speed or explosive martial power or you're going to lift something very big, fast, or slow, I really think that that, that functional base, and without really saying the screen or the YBT, if I can see that you have a movement problem getting up off the floor or walking, then that's where I need to meet you for your movement problem because it's just going to get sucked into the vortex of the speed, the punch, or the lift that you're getting ready to ask me to, to teach you, you know? Get the roadblocks out of the way. Because yeah, and, it, and, it, and people think that's, that's such a buzzkill, you know? And, and, you know, the novice walks up to a car and goes, how fast will it go? But if I'm going to test drive it, I want to know how well does it stop. I'll figure out how fast it can go in a minute, but I got a really important question for you first. <laughs> and most people just don't think about that. When they see heavy things, they don't think well. They think how much, you know, and, and so. Well, and you're going to be loading the system. I mean, you know, when we talk about getting into heavy strength training, and heavy's relative, right? That's a, we can put quotation marks around that all day and, and talk about how. Well, but okay, dive into that a little bit, Brett. When yeah. you say relative, let's take a, you know, if you have a female coming to your workshop that mm-hmm. assumes they can't lift a, do a single leg deadlift with a 24K, don't make that assumption, right? And don't let them think they can't do it. Absolutely. One of the greatest things when kettlebells first came out, they were all in kilos. So I would hand somebody an eight kilo bell, 16 pounds, or a 12 kilo bell, 25, 26 pounds, and I would have them do something with it. And then they'd say, oh, yeah, that eight pounds, that felt pretty good. I'm like, no, no, that's eight kilos. That was 16 pounds. You're, you're actually way stronger than you think you are. Mm-hmm. And there, we could probably do a whole other podcast on the psychology of strength and the fact that, um, you know, I, I was the 11th guy in the world to bend a red nail. Um, and was, a red nail is? A red nail is a five, five sixteenths by seven inch long piece of cold roll steel. So you get to wrap that the ends of the tough. nail. It's, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's tough. <laughs> It's a piece of steel bigger, bigger around than a pencil and not that long. And I've even tried to even put a little bit of pressure on one. I can't, number one, I don't, realize, I don't know how you handle the pain to do it, but it's all in technique. But the other oh, thing. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You mentioned something right there, Greg. It's all in technique. technique that's what is, you have to get to. Technique is strength. Strength is technique.
Well, and nobody says, oh, he's not a good shooter. He just has good technique. He's not a good basketball player. He just has good technique. You assume that the technique is what makes them really good at those activities. Well, that's strength. That's exactly strength. And the, the one thing that I think I've heard you say so many different ways is the art of strength is making something hard seem easier. And that can be done in the same session. It's Strength is not about the said principle, specific adaptation to impose demand or the stress recovery cycle. The very biggest part of strength is technique on the outside. On the inside is reorganizing neurological system. And I always drop this stat, four to six weeks of, of a new strength training activity, you have no change in tissues. It's all, you're upgrading the app and learning how to run it better. Upgrading the app and learning how to run it better. And there's absolutely no physical change in your body whatsoever, even though in that first four to six weeks, you normally make your greatest, most aggressive strength gain you ever will. You will get stronger but not at this rate of change. And so that introduction of a new stress, a new technique, both reorganizes your neurological system for efficiency, but also outwardly teaches you the benefits of proper technique, alignment, breath, balance, control. And so many people lose that and just think, maybe two more beatdowns and I'll get stronger. No, you'll just have two more beatdowns on you. Absolutely. (laughs) Strength is a skill. One of the first things that Pavel uh, hammered into my thick little skull is that strength is a skill. And, and that was probably harder for him with you than anybody else because, dude, you're naturally strong. Your grip strength is not something, yes, you've developed it, but you already had a lot to work with. And, and body relative, your deadlift uh, is, has been what? At what body weight? My best was 573 competing at uh, 196. 198, I weighed about 196, uh, 518 squat, um, bench was never my strong suit, um, had a over 300 pound bench, but that's pathetic for competing in the 198 uh, weight class in, in powerlifting. And really what unlocked a lot of my strength and gave me the ability to focus it okay. was kettlebell training. It was the things Pavel was teaching me about breath, how to optimize your breath to increase your strength how to uh, activate, be a strength professional. You know, we want uh, our, the way to your point of making hard things look easy. If you watch or you're in the car with a Formula One race driver, uh, you don't even feel the gears change. You just go faster. Well, get in the car with somebody who's learning how to drive a stick. And I've you're taught gonna... two teenage females yes. how to drive a stick. So after you get over the whiplash and the getting jerked back and forth in the car, you, but that's how most people strength train. Yeah. They're, they're strength amateurs instead of strength professionals. And you develop your journey towards building greater skill, knowing how to incorporate these tension techniques, the breathing, um, and that, that psychology of strength. There, there's a will. You have to be willing to be strong. No, and and there's a quick anecdote here. When Brett and I first brought the brilliance of the Turkish getup to the fitness community at Perform Better and at the NSCA, not many people knew what we were doing, but it was a breath of fresh air because not many people could do it wrong. Brett and I initially, even though we had a wall full of kettlebells, initially taught a Turkish getup with you laying flat on your back, getting in the start position, but balancing your own shoe on your flat fist. And a lot of people thought we were insulting their fitness or poo-pooing their strength. 
we weren't because halfway through the get-up, they're like, and why am I doing with this, a shoe, this with a shoe again? Meanwhile, the shoe falls off their hand, hits them on the top of the head, and Brett would go, now aren't you glad it wasn't a kettlebell? <laughs> and, and so that is the point where people are so willing to dump technique to simply experience and perform the thing. And I'm like, no, I want you to watch a few of these. Okay, I want you to feel a few of these with no load. And believe it or not, if you don't have mobility problems, the load actually helps you be more stable because it gives you more sensory information. But you're going to make a lot of mistakes going through these transitional patterns going up. And that ability to have that perfectly vertical load, brilliant. As a matter of fact, I, I think when you and I were doing a lot of the work in the Turkish get-up stuff, we were almost looking historically at, I don't think they were using this as an exercise as much as they were using it as a screening tool. Meaning if you can't do that, I think I'm not going to teach you this yet. And it's right. brilliant. Right. Yeah. Kind of, kind of going back to, to walking, you, walking someone through it and right. you talk about the psychology. Touch on that a little bit. So when you remove the roadblocks and the roadblock, one of the things you said there was you talk about breathing being so important. Well, breathing could be the roadblock as well. And you got to start, I would assume you're going to start the most fundamental thing that they have as a roadblock, clear that. And then you're going to add in some of these strength components, but kind of keep walking us through that that situation. Absolutely. So um, once we clear the roadblocks, uh, one of the first things I'm getting to is the kettlebell, because I can incorporate all of my high tension techniques, my breathing techniques, uh, and and skill. Uh, when you say high tension, explain that. Okay. So um, principle of irradiation, right? So if I squeeze or activate one muscle, the other muscles in the area want to cheer and help um, along. So it, it, we increase activation um, via... Sort just, of an authentic sequence. The, the yeah. way you were meant to work is when you take your grip seriously or you overgrip a little bit, everything that's supposed to happen naturally happens a little bit better if it wasn't already. So that, that little bit of overemphasis on the right body part creates harmony that you wouldn't otherwise have well and quick side journey with with high tension techniques what we're talking about doing is feed forwarding your tension i know i'm going to pick up something heavy so i am going to prepare my structure to do that versus a more authentic or reactive strategy that is going to happen when i'm playing a game i'm not running or nobody's running around the soccer pitch going you know, bracing their core for every step. They're running around the soccer pitch con concerned about what's happening with the ball and their opponent. And so you have to have both of those strategies in place. And I, you know what? That's a, that's a great point, Brad. I know you said sidebar, but that's, I think that's something to, to kind of dive into just a little is that that's been also a misunderstood concept is that when you, you know, talk about breathing, fundamental breathing, that's something that we do as humans, versus 21,000 times a day yeah versus what you have to train someone to do when they're getting ready to pick something up and what Pavel was talking about performance wise and you you got to make sure the fundamentals there first absolutely absolutely you and helped so, me with deadlifting uh, a while back with a few very important cues that go to both that I'm I'm a big guy but pound for pound I'm nowhere close to your strength and so I do two things bending over and grabbing a bar I'm going to probably hold my breath and I'm probably going to jerk it because I just want to get this shit over with, right? I, I'm, I, I'm already a little bit intimidated by the weight you put on the bar. You make me slow down 
you say wedge yourself between the bar and the floor and use your breath to help you. And that doesn't mean you're holding it. You're actually organizing. So what you showed me and what made a lot of sense to me is you showed me how to coil the spring. So when the weight comes off the floor, that's actually easier than getting in position. Yes. Uh, Or it was for me at first. But like light bulbs went off in my head because I'm a farm boy. I just grab stuff and jerk on it and hope it winds up in the back of the truck. But that's not the way. We don't have to do that this way. We, we can actually treat this and give this the respect it's worth. And it's actually very invigorating, almost getting lightheaded in a good way when you do a deadlift properly and no part of it hurts and no one part of it is harder than the rest. And, and that, you, you taught me that and I already thought I knew how to live weight, so... Treat your lightweights heavy so your heavyweights feel light. <laughs> there you go. And that's, a, that's an old-time strongman that uh, had that quote. It's, it's not me. Uh, but it's, it's a truism, and it's uh, knowing how to uh, upgrade your software, knowing how to uh, have these patterns happen uh, better, knowing um, how to improve the, just, just the overall um, sequencing and, and patterning and so the high tension techniques come in because um, with irradiation and with breathing techniques, so we focus on uh, power breathing and, and some breath holds. So obviously for anybody listening that has high blood pressure or has been warned by their cardiovascular, <laughs> if, if you have heart problems, talk to your doctor first. Um, but you know these high tension techniques and the breathing techniques, what we're trying to do is pressurize the midsection. There are baroreceptors in your midsection that allow you to turn the amplifier up and play the music louder, to be stronger. And conversely, when you can't pressurize the midsection, your body will turn the volume knob down uh, on your amplifier. And so we focus on grip, abs, glutes, uh, and lats. Lats are a huge one. And this is something that when people deadlift, they don't get their lats involved. Well, the lats are the only thing that connect your upper body to your lower body. So if I'm getting ready to grab onto a bar connected to my upper body and push with my legs and I don't create that bridge, that's a problem because guess who takes the load? Your back. And real quick for our guest, if you follow the fascia line of the right latissimus dorsi, your right lat, it inserts on your deep lumbar fascia, which inserts on your left glute, which becomes your left ITB. So you have this beautifully well-organized tensegrity, this X across your back, and by engaging your lat... You don't have to think about your glute. And if once you've done it a few times, you can just engage your glute and the lat and everything talk because they are in the same sequence, often trained in isolation, but never intended to work that way. Well, and that's something we talked about a long time ago as far as the lat and the shoulder. Because when I, when I take you up into the classic kind of 90-90 position where maybe I was going to test your shoulder or something like that, well, the lats become the anterior containment. For yes. your and it's a force coupling mechanism for how your sh- glenoid and shoulder are going to function. Now, rotator cuff had to fire first. We had force coupling mechanisms that had to happen back there in the glenoid. But then that lat is a key component to being able to press or go overhead effectively. And knowing how to use your lat in your pressing motions is is key. So these high tension techniques, these things that we bring together, uh, allow you to upgrade your software instantaneously and be stronger right now. 
And then it's my job as a coach to continue to refine your technique, to continue to make sure that you're applying that strength in the, mo- the best way possible. Because your old saying, power punishes, speed kills. <laughs> well, your power will punish you and your speed will kill you if you do not know how to control it. Well, so if, if right now somebody were, were very early to strength training, but they really wanted to get some fundamentals down, it's not like you need to be doing eight different lifts, is it? No, I think that's one of the other brilliant things that, uh, that Pavel's done over the years is this, uh, he has a, a true drive towards minimalism. And so his first book, one of his first books, Power to the People, Deadlift, Side Press. That was it. That, that was the routine. Now, I think everybody listening knows a deadlift. And, and obviously, just, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of people thinking they're deadlifting with a trap bar. And that's sort of a way to cheat your deadlift. I think just the straight bar right up the front and keep those tibias back. And so if it looks like a squat, you're probably squatting. Uh, the deadlift doesn't look like a, like a squat. What's a side press? Side press is a military press, but with some leaning of the body. So in combination with leaning away from the weight, you are also pressing the weight. This is versus a bent press where you are actually getting under the weight without pressing it. Well, you know, a lot of people would say, well, if I'm facing the mirror with a dumbbell and I'm doing a one-arm press, I don't want to lean. I got to keep my spine organized. But you didn't say flex lumbar. What you said is keep the weight between your feet. Because that's the way gravity likes it best, and that's the way you actually have the most control over the weight. If it's out beyond your base of support and that far away from your center of mass, you're going to create unnecessary work. And I see a lot of people lifting in bad angles and thinking because it's harder, it's better, and it's actually exactly the opposite. If you had to do this 600 times, that's the best way to do it. Well, and that's one of the best uh, descriptions, and, and it's from you on the, on the get-up, but I think it applies to almost everything we do. Alignment with integrity under load. Mm-hmm. That, that gets you... That accomplishes so much. (laughs) And it sort of does a feed forward for your stability. Unfortunately, a lot of your stability is subconscious. It really is. And that's why I I throw this out to both of you guys. If people use their, if people pick the correct exercise and then did it correctly, we wouldn't need to do corrective exercise nearly as much as we do. So, so not all corrective exercise is imposed on you because you got something wrong with you. I would say more often than not, we're giving you corrective exercise because you've been doing something wrong for 15 years or 10 years. You're, you're, you're doing something very wrong in your running. You're doing something very wrong in your lifting. You're doing something very wrong. And that habit is now created a functional problem. But listen, picking exercises correctly and picking fewer exercises and then doing more correctly literally removes the need for corrective exercise. Because if you come to an exercise with appropriate mobility and do it right, it takes care of the stability. The alignment with integrity under load is something 
the coach should be introducing you to. So, you know, I've had this talk with a lot of different strength coaches. If you bring the right mobility to an exercise and coach the exercise right, the stability work takes care of itself. And it used to, right up until about 1980-something. And then we had to start supplementing stability, like side planks and stuff like that, because people were not trained in a functional fashion. They were allowed to lift with mobility problems, and they were allowed to explode with stability problems. So, but a key point there to come back to is if you haven't set a baseline for how they're moving, you don't know if they're bringing the right mobility to that correct exactly. exercise. Exactly. So correct exercise has always been important. But if I clear the baseline and let's say I find a locked up ankle, well, I, doing a squat more correctly probably not going to open up that ankle. Right. It's not, it's not, you're going to exactly, continue to exactly. compensate around yeah. it. And I think, you know, one thing we can touch on and, you know, to me is, you know, we keep, we come back to remove, remove the roadblocks. And of course, one of the ways we do that is to do a movement screen. Yeah. And I think people are getting to the point where, especially now, people are getting to the point where the pendulum swung to one side, in my opinion, where people are over assessing, you know, we, we got to assess and, you know, how many, you know, taking 45 minutes to assess somebody is not necessarily in the weight room or the fitness area. It may, it may be necessary if you got a back problem and we got to figure out what's going on. But if you're getting ready to go lift, you know, you don't necessarily need to do that. So the pendulum, in my opinion, swung so far where screens and assessments were almost frowned upon. Yep. Now it's going back to where, well, if I just exercise you right, I don't need to do that. Right. And, you know, I don't want Gray's, what Gray is saying to be misconstrued. If I, Gray said, well, if I watch you walk, I know that you need to be doing something. Well, if you're not walking right, I don't still don't know why. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you right. don't know why you're having a problem. And that's kind of what you're getting to, uh, Brett, is you still have to understand that most people are walking in broken right now. Right. The data is telling you 75 to 80% of the people walking in that want to start exercising have a problem. Well, let you me, just don't know where the problem is. Let or, me reiterate this. Brett and I were discussing the risk factors this morning that lead to musculoskeletal health risk. Pain with movement right off the top is one. But the cluster of signals we get from global movement, like the Y-balance uh, test or the functional movement screen, are more prevalent in those 15 or 16 risk factors that are emerging in the research than anything else. And yet, we're talking 10 minutes, right? You flunk a movement screen, I'd love to know your YBT. You flunk a YBT, I'd love to know your movement screen. The YBT really does tell me if you're functionally sick, and the FMS tells me which one of these movement pattern medicines you need. And and thanks to Phil Plisky and, and, and Kyle Kiesel, they've really helped us understand. So there are legitimate things you can do in the first 10 minutes to know how many risk factors this person has who's asking me for fitness or Rehabilitation. How about that? How about the, the the therapist and chiropractors and athletic trainers out there realizing that this isn't just an ACL. This is an ACL with scoliosis, pain on a prone press up and a locked up ankle. That's a whole different day. That's a whole different patient. And they deserve those things to be acknowledged because who else is going to catch them? Their basketball coach, their orthopedic surgeon? No. But no. Brett, but that's going to make your job, going back to kind of this whole case where we're looking at building strength. Yeah. The thing when I see people say, well, I don't need to do a movement screen. I'm going to take care of it during their workout. Well, okay, fair enough. But by doing your process of removing the roadblocks, you're going to, it's the tortoise versus the hare. You're going to get there quicker Absolutely. over time. Over time, you will get there quicker and have somebody stronger rather than just saying, I don't need to do any of assessments. My workout's going to take care of it. Absolutely. And to your point of the pendulum and something that I've been talking about is, 
pendulums do not swing to the middle, they swing through it. So we love to go from extreme to extreme. So yes, it was years ago, it was if you're not assessing, you're guessing, and then it's I don't need to do any of it. Well, the truth, as always, is usually somewhere in the middle. And the middle range is at least have a baseline. So if I skip that step, and I go and start squatting you, and I see something wrong in your squat, I now have to go back and check and see, is it a movement problem? Because if I keep banging away in your squat and you got a locked up ankle that actually needs a quick mobilization or has a bone spur, like there's a reason you're, you're lacking ankle mobility. I want to take all that stuff off the table first. It's just a more efficient process. And it makes me, and I need all the help I can get, it makes me look a lot smarter to the person that I'm getting ready to train. Because I have this opportunity to create an individualized program that gets rid of the roadblocks and gets them to their goals faster. The only purpose of exercise is to enhance the stress recovery cycle. Meaning if I give you more stress than you can recover from, you're actually going to be in more debt. Secondly, if you're not even well recovered from the non-active lifestyle you have now, what happens when I add activity? If I don't add it in a prudent dosage, you're not going to sleep better. You're not going to hydrate better, and it's actually going to impose worse, worse breathing. So there's a ripple effect that happens when we impose stress. And when you pick that stress, you've got to pick it well <laughs> before you pick it often. And so a lot of people want to get after it with exercise. They just want to feel something. And if you pick the stress in the right place, you've got plenty of time to correct the other stuff. But most people want to do certain moves, whether they can or can't. And letting them doesn't, doesn't really do too good. But these are people who just don't have explanations of why we shouldn't do it this way. And You've never had to over-explain that. I've never had to over-explain that. The confidence level of, we're going to get there, and this is the path we're taking. Yeah. And, and you got you got to be confident in that. You can't just listen to what we're saying and tell somebody that. You need to screen, you need to re-screen, and you need to own what you didn't change, and you need to own what you did change. Because now, after that first screen, you're in control of the program. And that's, so, the to draw back and you know we're we're trying to lay this out and of course as we always do we we tangent and uh, we keep swinging from subject to subject but clear the baseline get them learning some of these high tension techniques uh, and that can be a variety of body weight moves just amplifying your push up your plank um, getting uh, your goblet squat dialed in getting your get up dialed in and getting to kettlebell moves like the swing and the if overhead pressing is indicated the, the standing military press and things like that. Um, I, I have yet to not increase somebody's strength and get them headed in the direction that they wanted to go by following that path. Uh, so it's, it's, it, we've kind of almost made it sound like a long process. It's not. It's and, not just, and just like with and even the conversation between setting the baseline and clearing the baseline, that's not a long conversation either unless it's complicated by pain or a history of a lot of things. Um, you give me somebody that's been behind a desk for 30 years, and they've actually developed some structural adaptation, uh, collapse, T-spine, kyphosis. Yeah, that journey to going overhead is going to be longer, uh, if ever. Uh, and so we may have to change and modify the goals. But the, the goal is always, um, it, I like to have fun. My training's fun. The results I get from my training are fun. 
but I don't vary my training all the time in order to create fun. The fun is in the process. And that was uh, Dr. Ed Thomas is somebody that we've both uh, worked with and, and uh, has been influential. Uh, one of the things he said that has stuck out to me uh, very strongly is I never went to the gym to work out. I went to the gym to learn. When was the last time you approached your kettlebell swing, your press, your deadlift, your whatever as an opportunity to learn? Yeah, you went to practice a skill and somehow the workout was the side effect, not the goal. And, and, and how eloquent is that? But if you look back to fitness pictures that are easily black and white and people are wearing sleeves and pants, what you're going to see is people practicing really functional, purposeful, transferable movement that is giving them breath, posture, pattern, and fitness at the exact same time so nothing is supplemented. They're not doing crunches. They're not doing curls. They're basically using their core and functional positions. They're using their body symmetrically or asymmetrically. And and that is, that is brilliant. The, the Turner-style gyms, we've seen this type of reemergence in functional fitness occur in almost every culture at some point. And then something happens like a freaking war or a pandemic or a famine and people forget what they just relearned for the 10,000th time is that you can't fool nature. If, if, if you're working on the wrong, wrong aspect of movement development, it will happen. Well, one <laughs> anyway, thing, one it's thing called I, compensation. One of the takeaways, Brett, with what, you know, quoting Dr. Ed Thomas is, to me, I look at that as awareness, you know, you, you're going to go in there to, you know, in his words, learn. Well, you know, take another approach and go in there and figure out, you know, what's what you're good at and what you're not good at. And then try to work, work on what you're not good at. But it's that underlying awareness factor that I think a lot of what you can find out in those roadblocks that people are unaware of. Wow, I didn't realize I couldn't do this or couldn't do that. Well, now you know why you're you're maxed out on your deadlift or your squat is because your ankle's locked up and you're just sacrificing Peter to pay Paul mm-hmm. type of thing. So it's that awareness factor of the other way to kind of, in my mind, that's how I would look at that is when I'm going in to learn, well, really I'm going in to figure out, you know, that, that awareness piece is pretty important. You said make light things seem hard. And if you do everything right to even make the light things seem hard and they still can't do it, there's a good chance that's a mobility problem. And if you make it a light thing hard and it gets way better, that was a stability problem. I, I can't make it any more simple than that. Small clarifier there. Make your light weights feel heavy. In other words, treat your light weights with respect. Apply Feed forward. That, that a- whole anticipatory pretensioning is a responsibility that you're going to need later on anyway. Because if, if I can't bring that to a lightweight, there's really no chance of me being able to effectively do it at a heavier weight. And to your point, could easily be a mobility problem that I just can't access that pattern. If you have mobility restrictions, you have less proprioception, you don't map yourself, you cannot pattern yourself in the most efficient way. And so uh, that all just keeps coming back around and, and being true. And um, you know the, the other aspect in working with Dr. Thomas, um, and I, I presented at the 2004 NSCA conference with Michael uh, Castro Giovanni, and we were talking about kettlebells, and Dr. Ed Thomas was there with Juan Carlos Santana uh-huh. doing a history of, uh, of training talk. And they were talking about, uh, you know, this wide-ranging aspect of this historical perspective. And they saw us doing kettlebells, and they're like, well, 
yeah, that's historical. That's amazing. You guys should come and, you know, we were up on stage with Juan Carlos. Um, I actually talked over him at one point and thought my career was over <laughs> and, uh, which was really funny, uh, but for another day. And, uh, Dr. Ed Thomas put in my hands a pair of Indian clubs and, uh, gave, that was 2004. Uh-huh. And then fast forward a few years, you had met Dr. Thomas and, and were aware of his work. And we had him in to talk about inversion and Indian clubs and Indian clubs are something that have become part of our methods and part of our training and something that I get people doing. Uh, and, you know, we, we were talking earlier and, you know, we, we focus on these nice, light, one pound clubs and to the point of me liking to pick up heavy things, and there are heavier clubs, maces, meals, things of that nature, um, I've got the heavy angle covered. I don't need more heavy in my life. I do enough of that. I need restorative. I need speed. I need coordination. I need something that's great for my joint health, something that's a skill acquisition. I can spend a lifetime trying to get better at some of these basic uh, Indian club moves, and it helps me um, work with people um, in that in that balance, right? Because power, strength that you cannot apply never becomes power. I've and, always called the Indian club sort of the, the upper body equivalent of jump rope. A deadlift won't make you energy store better, and jump rope won't improve your deadlift. But having both gives you every gear in the transmission you'd probably need. But your legs function like pistons. They really do. They store energy like pistons in a linear fashion in most of the time. Now, your, your legs have PNF patterns too, but the way we use our legs is very organized as a piston load. You use your arms like fan blades. So the circular patterns in Indian clubs helps you make the most of your strength training and doing only one doesn't give you the best of both worlds to the point where after you and I had already done our first DVD on Indian clubs, I started maybe taking a little bit of artistic license and so did you with the way we would use and teach clubs. Not that I don't think Ed Thomas had some of the best historical information in the world. We had a different population. So there was a translation and a, and a documentation we had to do. And we took Indian clubs to the force plate and the K-Lab with Dr. Rob Butler down at Duke University. And my mind blew up because we were able to see some things on a kettlebell swing that we hadn't seen before. And we were also able to see some things with Indian clubs that two pounds in your hand shouldn't do, and it did. So. Well, it's amazing to take a, an over 5,000-year-old implement. <laughs> yeah, which was uh, really, it was more for, uh, it wasn't for training. Correct. The original name is the Indian War Club, and I'm saying in Indian as in from India. Um, in the Hindu and Vedic traditions, in clubs have an over 5,000-year history where the deities in the, in the Hindu and Vedic traditions are always pictured, basically, with a club of some fashion. Now, that could be a heavy club. It could be a smaller club. But yes, these were weapons of war, uh, which is why we want you to be very safe when you're using them. But even how you train, the training of that, if you really think about the, I would say, the traditional moves, are training for protection and fighting, Right. Well, let's be honest. All of our training methods draw back to how we would train to better handle uh, physical confrontation. So, um, Dr. Ed Thomas talks Even about, running. <laughs> <laughs> well, you either need to get to the battle or away from the battle. <laughs> those, those are two very As important Cosgrove things. As Cosgrove said, I either had to learn to fight or run fast, and I'm not that fast. So, <laughs> you, you pick your battles. Um, but 
there, and when you look at the ancient training traditions, uh, there was a martial component, uh, your ability to respond to oppression, uh, aggression appropriately. There was a restorative component because when you're learning how to respond to aggression appropriately and you might be getting knocked around a little bit and pushing your body, you need a way to recover and restore. Mm -hmm. And there was a pedagogical uh, end of things, which is the theoretical body of knowledge that supports the other two. Um, well, we don't have a martial component much anymore. Our martial component now is fitness. Fitness has become our martial art. Not sure uh, that that's the best or most authentic usage of that. And re re restoration has become a cottage industry of all of these products that people use to try to recover from their training with a bad lifestyle. And I was asked on a podcast uh, quite some time ago, they were like, well, what's your favorite recovery strategy? And I'm like, proper programming. Because if I program myself appropriately, I should recover from my training. Now, we, we have to have the lifestyle conversation within that. But if you're, if you're out there in the world and you're constantly figuring out, I don't know how I'm going to recover from my training, um, do less. That's the art of training. That is, that's the art. I the mean, there's a science component, effect. but the art of really training somebody properly is giving them the right program so they do recover so they can do more. I tell everybody that starts with me, this is our starting point, and we no plan survives contact with the enemy. And yes, right now, you are the enemy. <laughs> and we are going to have to adapt this plan as we move forward because I don't know your progression uh, speed. I don't know how you're going to adapt to this. Um, and I don't know if you're going to change those lifestyle things that we talked about. Because if you refuse to hydrate and do the five other things that I need you to do, and you're still trying to figure out how to recover from your training, I'm not going to ask you to do very much. Just as a quick sidebar, the, the movement screens that uh, some of our guys were able to do in the military on people who were both dehydrated and sleep-deprived scored low compared to their baseline, significantly low, measurably low in both their balance and in their movement patterns. Had you not known if they were sleep-deprived or dehydrated, you'd be assigning a corrective strategy when really they just needed to reintroduce better electrolytes and maybe go to bed before 10 o'clock every now and then, especially when you have a hard day. And so it's real easy for those of us in movement to have a movement remedy for everything. But if we're obsessive about measuring stress dosage and not measuring recovery, then we're missing it. And I found that the people obsessed in measuring recovery just take any old load and call it fitness. And the people who are obsessed with measuring their workout stress don't seem to equally balance that with recovery. And for, uh, for a little bit of education and a few devices, you can easily measure both ends now, and there's no reason not to know both. I know, you know heart rate variability has no placebo effect, and it's, it's easier to get on yourself in a reliable way than it ever has before. And if your heart rate variability says this is not a good day to push hard, no matter how you feel or what you look like in the mirror, I'm believing that more than what you think or say. So, And so drawing things around back to the original question of basically how do you build a monster? How do, how do you build somebody that's really strong? Clear the baseline. Understand high-tension techniques. Get them to the kettlebell, uh, as in my opinion, as quickly as possible. Um, nail your programming, your lifestyle. 
get the Indian clubs involved as a way to drop tension, keep speed, efficiency, joint health, and create a, a more holistic uh, program. I'm glad you said that because coming to strength training with inappropriate tension is like trying to learn to punch with a clenched fist. You see most people go from relaxation to contraction in this effortless way. And so lately I've been using Indian clubs to dump tension um, on a day even when I'm not going to get to work out, but definitely on a day when I'm going to work out, I'll pick some of those techniques that just let me sort of loosen up because static stretching isn't the only way to loosen up. There's so many more neural enhancing ways to, to loosen up. Relaxing a muscle is actually more energy expenditure than contracting it. You have to pump things out instead of just letting things dump in. So relaxation is a skill that needs to be built. Um, most people walk around never knowing what it's like to be maximally tense. They don't know what it's like to relax, but they walk around in that middle gray zone. When, and not, Which is inefficient on both ends. Well, not, no, no, not pun, gray. Pun, pun intended. Pun, no, 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 no pun it. intended. You don't um, want to spend time <laughs> yeah, in, you the don't want to be in the gray zone. zone. I can barely no, handle it. No gray zone. Um, but they walk around in that middle. They're somewhat tense all the time, and they can't relax. It's horribly inefficient. You made the joke many years ago, put on a pair of tight jeans and go upstairs. It's not going to feel the same as going up in your workout shorts. It's right. going to cost you more in order to do that. So when you're walking around in that semi-tight state all the time and wondering why you can't build efficiency or speed or power, it's because you don't know how to relax. One of the things Pavel talked about very early on was some Russian research where the difference between a world-class competitor and the one run down, so this is like a national level, or it was national level competitor and then one run down, is the national level competitor could relax 800% faster than the regional competitor. And so your ability to relax, and, and Stu talks about this, mm -hmm. when he talks about pulses, your ability to pulse, create tension, and then relax and let that pulse of energy go where it needs to go then you have to have the ability to summate that force and have another point of tension where you deliver the energy that you've been able to relax and move from point A to point B. Uh, is that it, It's very consistent whether we're talking about the martial artist who learned slow motion katas and fast movements and practiced restorative techniques or whether we're talking, uh, you know, a biomechanist, uh, biomechanic uh, guy like Stu McGill, who's talking about pulses and tension and relaxation. Two sides of the same coin, got to be good at both of them. Well, Brad, you brought up something right there. We're talking about um, the data and research that Pavel mentioned about the elite and then one rung down. What's interesting, when we looked at some of the data and the research we have on our movement screen, the rotary stability test, in my opinion, kind of checks, checks that, right? Absolutely. Is that all we're looking, with the push-up, we're checking your ability to tense up, create that tension with our rotary stability test. And if you guys don't know it, you get in quadruped and basically like a bird dog. Now we change it up because we do one-sided and we do a basically same side. Can you react to that and create some stability, not so much tension? And what we saw with that was the elite Olympic level, gold medal Olympic level. So when, you're the, when you go to the Olympics, you've already beat out <laughs> very elite people. The Olympic level track athletes were getting threes on rotary stability. One rung down, they were twos. And I would argue that it's very similar to what Pavel was saying um, with the Russian athletes. 
100%. If anybody remembers the old movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, when they're interviewing for the bank job that they're going to eventually rob, but they're interviewing to protect the, the bank so that they can rob it. And the guy throws a, a can out in the street, has them draw their weapons and try to hit the, shoot the can. Well, I can't remember if it's Paul Newman's or whoever's character it was. Uh, they missed the can like three times. And mm-hmm. the guy's like, um, you don't have the job. And he goes, wait, can I move? And the guy's like, what do you mean? Can I draw? Can I move? And the guy's like, yeah, it's not going to help. No, no, it helped a lot because when you tense up and try to hit a target, it's very different than naturally letting everything sink and relaxing and hitting the target. Best way to improve your rotary stability? Relax. Don't try so hard. And, and yeah. Yeah, I'm not trying to give, a, give it away, but people who naturally shift their weight before they change their weight distribution who just intuitively do that. The, you don't tell the cat to land on their feet when you throw them in the air. They do. And so what Lee's saying is that innate ability to know I need to shift my base of support to two points off of four before I lift the other two points. Other people look at the move and simply attempt it with no intuition ever. And you, nobody will tell you why they did or didn't do it because that is a part of movement that I think we are lucky enough to capture with the movement screen is if you can't do it, you cannot will yourself to a better score. We found a subconscious bottleneck in your movement. How are we going to consciously train you out of that? We're not. We're going to go back below that and recalibrate that thing. But circling back, Brett, to creating strength and even using the Indian clubs as part of that process Mm -hmm. you've got to have that innate ability because that really goes back to what you're talking about with the radiation and creating that underlying kind of stability right Mm -hmm. to allow you to create the tension you need right and so in taking on whether it's an internal load if i'm doing something like a one-arm push-up one-arm one-leg push-up or i'm performing a heavy kettlebell press uh, i i need to be able to feed forward that tension, be ready for that load. Uh, where, but if I'm uh, swinging a kettlebell, I now have to have those pulses. I have to have that boom, that tension to propel the weight, that relaxation to let that energy go where it's supposed to go, and then have that reabsorption and redirection of energy, uh, which I think is the magic of all the kettlebell ballistics, is I have this dynamic uh, loaded eccentric that really trains me to relax, absorb, redirect, that sounds like athletics. And so it's all of that stuff comes together. And then I do something light, restorative, skill-oriented, dumping tension. We, we put it together into a better package. If I just focus on strength, which I have, I'm um, mildly obsessional uh, about certain things. Uh, so when I started bending nails, I went from bending my first nail, which was a 60-penny nail, um, I actually went to be a witness for somebody who was getting certified as bending the red nail. And uh, his mentor was there with him, a uh, little guy named Steve McGranahan. Um, look up world's strongest redneck. Uh, Steve's about 6'4", 320 pounds. He's <laughs> not a little guy. Uh, fantastic gentleman. Uh, just a really, really fantastic gentleman. And, it, you know, he was looking at me while you know, we were going through this, and he goes, you ever try to close a gripper? I'm like, no, not really. He goes, uh, take this gripper and do it here and do this and see if you can do that. And I closed a number two gripper the first time ever trying. 
And then he had me, he's like, oh, try to bend this nail. He's like, this is, this is kind of what you do. And he had me going double underhand, which bending people will, will recognize. And I bent a 60-penny nail first time I tried. He goes, you should do this. You should do a little bit of this because you're, you're already at a decent level. And I went from that first bending experience to bending the red nail in about five months. Wow. Um, because I did nothing else. <laughs> I think I did some swings and I did bending. And then when I really got into powerlifting, 2005, 2006, I became squat obsessed. I Bending steel, there is nothing like feeling steel give way to your strength. It is addictive for me. Squatting, there is nothing like loading your, the bar and squatting down and standing up with it. The way that load feels through your body, I just freaking loved it. And mm-hmm. so I squatted. I would squat heavy two and three days a week. I, I just loved it. So I'm mildly obsessional when I get onto something like that. And so... Oh, I remember you telling me when you were going heavy uh, in a lot of powerlifting stuff, you did it with the full intention knowing your movement screen was going down. Absolutely. I was willing to sacrifice right, right. the quality. And, and we talk to athletes about that. Yep. When you're going to specialize... We expect to see the asymmetries and the stiffness that's inherently protective or going to be done. And and I've heard Greg Rose say this: if 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 you're a you know unilateral athlete and don't have asymmetries, you're probably not training hard enough. However, if you still have them after you're training with the right coach, they're probably not doing enough functional stuff. So it's this dichotomy of knowing when you push yourself into a myopic focus or a specialized place, you're going to be giving up some of your adaptability in all other directions. The point of no return means you can never get it back, and you were never willing to lose it forever, but right. you went through a training cycle that got you stiffer and bulkier because you're doing things that like stiffness and bulkiness with a certain degree of skill uh, imposed. But what really got us here is um, something that I'm going to set Lee up for a car analogy is own your entire <laughs> RPM range of, of movement and exercise. There, there is low RPM means you know how to dump tension and sort of get ready for something. And, and high RPM means you do understand the responsibility of uh, pressurization organization prior to a sprinter in the blocks taking off or doing a bench press. Well, but Brett, during that process, though, when was there a time where you're like, all right, I'm close to the point of no return? Definitely, definitely. Um, and I, you know, I am not a garage-kept single owner that was only driven to church, to stick with the uh, car <laughs> analogies. Uh, I have mileage. Um, and so I have uh, some... Um, uh, high alpha angle hips, uh, so I have FA, cam style FAI on both hips, torn labrum, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I still rock bottom my squats and swing and do everything very happily because I know how to manage what I have going on. And one of the things Gray talked about a long time ago is I have one major restriction in my body. I will never have hip internal rotation, and I will not be able to flex my hip past a certain point. That is just structurally what I have. Put two major restrictions into that system, the system is going to have problems. So I have to maintain good ankles and good midsection stability to deal with the fact that my hips won't do a couple of things. And so what started to happen was because I was myopic and obsessional and I didn't maintain a very balanced program, uh, I started feeling uh, stress in the back and having a little bit of issues, some pain in my right hip and things that led me to go... I'm headed the wrong direction, you know, and I had, 
I had already, you know, uh, I had done what I wanted to do within that. Um, you know, uh, squatting over five and deadlifting uh, close to six, I was I was pretty happy with with where I was, and I wasn't willing to sacrifice uh, my health uh, in order to go further. And that's what it would have meant. And that's actually why I stopped bending uh, years ago. Was I had gotten to the point where I was I was bending cut down. Uh, I think I got down to a six and a quarter inch um, red nail, um, which the shorter you make the steel, the harder it right, is to, right. to bend. Um, but I started to recognize that there was going to be, <clears throat> pardon me, there was going to be a cost to going further. Uh, mm-hmm. I was going to exceed my structures uh, at a certain point. And so I just, I, I was smart enough to realize that I was getting ready to sacrifice something that I did not want to the, sacrifice. The philosophical statement is uh, specialization to an extreme point will actually kill some of your adaptive generalization after a while. And I think that's an informed risk. As long as you know, then you are an adult, do what you do. But I think a lot of people don't know that that if I go any deeper. And I've seen some, you and I have both worked with some triathletes that are past a point of no return of ever getting any stronger or any more functional because they've got 10,000 miles hunched on a bike with a bad running cadence and really poor swimming, but they've learned how to be ultra efficient in these tiny little slots. And their bodies just don't really straighten back up or squat back down or anything. And it's it's a shame to see because, you know, I think if somebody had been there along their evolution, you could have achieved everything you've achieved in the triathlon in the triathlon world and not lost a fraction of this if had you done it correctly. Definitely. No, it's it's uh, it is the more holistic uh, approach, and uh, it to your point. If it's an informed choice that you are going to sacrifice some adaptability for now in order to get to a goal, cool. Let's, let's take that journey. Let's, let's get you to that point and accomplish that goal in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. But let's know that we're coming back around at a certain point. And even though you hate single leg deadlifts, we're going to be programming some single leg deadlifts for you to get, get you back uh, dialed in a little bit. And um, I just think that uh, whatever... Whatever strength means to you, uh, and I, I can, we can draw this in a many different ways. Uh, my grandmother, who, who passed recently, was one of the strongest people I've ever known. She's never lifted a weight. Uh, I've had examples of strength and perseverance in my family that have guided me and uh, helped me become who I am. And I have seen people who are very physically strong. Mm-hmm. And so strength is wide-ranging. The, the ballet dancer that's up on stage is tremendously strong and powerful, but not going to be impressive in the weight room. And so defining strength for you, um, getting up and down off the ground to play with grandkids, define strength for you and pursue that. You you gave me uh, some advice, and I've played around with it, but literally with an appropriate kettlebell, a single leg deadlift, a one-arm press, and a, a sort of a front rack, one-sided squat is pretty holistic, meaning it has both corrective and conditioning. And if you're, if you're listening to this and, and you're, you're intrigued with kettlebells, but you've been looking for an on-ramp, uh, we've got the, the footage out there, but a single leg deadlift, a, a front squat, and a press are so fundamental and will expose you to both asymmetry and, and limitation, but an appropriate warm-up and a little bit of flexibility and then keep, keep those patterns alive, 
that is a, that's a great fundamental base. You know, if you've got a lot of stiffness, adding some detensioning stuff with uh, Indian clubs may show you what you thought was tightness was just tension. And so there's, there's a, this is way easier than most people think. I didn't mention swings or Turkish get-ups because there is a skill to that. And I'd like you to be in the room, if possible, with somebody who knows that or really, really study film before you do it yourself. But a single leg deadlift, a front squat and a press are, are absolutely fundamental. I just want to know if you'd add anything to that or if, if you would agree or disagree, but just I want to give everybody an on-ramp to the, the world that you're talking about. Prying goblet squat to kind of lead the charge. Okay, and, and a goblet squat for, for those who haven't met Dan John. Um, <laughs> holding the kettlebell by the horns, uh, slightly away from your body, squat down so your elbow, your olecranon process hits your VM, the little teardrop muscle. Stop press out, squat deeper through your hips, not your spine, pry side to side and open your hips up. And that sets a tremendous foundation for that front rack uh, squat. Perfect. And, you know, you'll, you'll also be able to do a cheat clean and get into the press. So that, that, that comes together really well. And what most people don't understand about a goblet squat is it's the same thing, Lee, and I do with a heel lift, and you've done with a heel lift. Having a weight in front of you is like having a little bit of a lift behind you, and it takes those ankles and those hips and that T-spine that may not be ready to squat and gives you just a little bit of an advantage. So whether you're prying and using tension to organize yourself or we just give you a taste of what a deeper squat feels like with a heel lift, both both work, but definitely I think that, that goblet squat's a great piece of advice just to see if you do it right and don't go much lower, you're hitting a hard stop. And if you do it right and you drop into a slot you didn't think you had, you were you are demonstrating a little bit more stability is actually perceived as a lot more mobility. Well, and last thing, because uh, talking about kind of the psychology of strength and, and how we would work through with somebody, um, and this is this is something that I've I've questioned a couple people on, and I think it's because we're we're talking about movement quality, we're talking about getting to your goals, exercising, you know, all of these things. Close your eyes. And everybody at home, close your eyes. And now I want you to think of the word strength. What's the first thing that pops into your head? I want you to picture the word fit. What's the first thing that pops into your head? If that is a negative image, if I say fit and you think of a junior high gym coach that tortured you and you had an awful experience in physical education in school... Don't wonder why you're having trouble pursuing your fitness goals. Because every time you say, I'm going to get fit, bing, that, that negative energy pops up in your brain, whether you want it to or not, and you're having a negative response. Now, if the first thing, when I say strength, I think of my dad. I think of my grandmother. I think of very positive things that have me pursuing this. Mm -hmm. So have that little moment of self-exploration uh, and awareness of when you are pursuing something like fitness and strength or whatever it is, have that moment. Think about what is the first thing to pop into your head. If it's negative, you got to flip that script. You got to find a way to turn that into a positive and find some better uh, relationship with that activity, that's, and that's going to enhance your your uh, your ability to accomplish it. Well, that's that's pretty insightful. And whether we're talking about the current 
opioid epidemic, which I think is a lot of mismanaged orthopedics, or the current bad experiences people have had in fitness, they had a bad experience. And so almost any, if somebody had a bad experience in physical therapy, don't you think I'm not going to hear about it the next time they're in therapy (laughs) and they're my patient for the first time, but they're lumping me into a category of rehabilitation that I left a long time ago. But, but we have to be sensitive to that. So yeah, if, if, if in rehabilitation in exercise and athletics or in just a group fitness environment, you've had a bad experience. I hate to say it, but we got to get on through that and 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 better just to demonstrate through our actions not just our talk that we're willing to take a different tack and you know movement screening doesn't go into deep individualization it simply puts people in a category where i think they can they can have a nice on ramp that's all it does it's not it's not you know it's only 10 minutes there's a lot more you could know about somebody you're going to train than just their movement screen and that's what you're saying you need to but but doing it without that part of it uh, makes it way harder. And we've been talking a lot about building strength. Well, if the first thing that pops into your head when I say building strength is a bodybuilder or it's, you know, a super heavyweight power lifter that's blowing snot and chalk and getting ready to pull <laughs> a max attempt, you're probably not going to have a real positive response to that message. But strength is the ballet dancer. It's the athlete on the field. It's the grandmother picking up their grandkids. It's the there's so many examples that we can draw in that are incredibly positive. Think about what your relationship is with that thing that you're trying to accomplish. And uh, if it is a negative response, work on flipping that script mm, because good. it is going to lead you towards your goals so much faster. Now, Brett, that, that's, that's a great way to wrap this, uh, wrap this up, man. And, and I really enjoyed uh, this conversation and, and just sitting back and kind of listening to everything and hopefully everybody else got something out of today. I know I did and really want to appreciate you coming in and being here, being in our studio. We don't get a lot of, a lot of chance to have people actually here and hang out with us. So really appreciate it, man. That's awesome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And it's just, it's great to, great to be part of the team. Good to see you, brother. Thank you, sir. That'll do it for this episode of the movement podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.